This episode of All Things Business, the podcast, is brought to you by our digital media partner, DFA Law. DFA Law, providers of expert and dedicated legal advice to businesses and families since 1838. DFA Law, the law firm for life. Welcome to the next episode of All Things Business, the podcast. Today, I'm joined by, in my words, a creative genius, Mr. Rory Sutherland. Rory, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's quite all right. So um, without bigging you up too much, a lot of people that are in the marketing world are going to know who Rory Sutherland is. But please, just you've been in marketing for over 35 years. Just give us a brief overview of how you ended up in marketing and what your journey's been up to the point of where we are today. Yeah, to be honest, um, it was a lucky break, which was that I was a classics student. Um, that's Latin and Greek, just in case people don't know. And I assumed, I think, that I was going to go into teaching and, in fact, took a year, postgraduate year, training to be a teacher. And the thing that frightened me then was that I suddenly realized, hold on, if I get a job as a teacher, I'll have spent my entire life, school, university, back to a school. I'll have spent my entire life in kind of educational establishments. Now, oddly, when I had been at school, um, one of the things that came up I must be the only person for whom the school careers advice was actually useful because one of the things that came up was advertising, I think, one of the top three recommended jobs for me when I did some sort of psychometric test yeah, or something yeah. like that. And um, uh, at the time, bear in mind this was the late 80s, it's fair to say also, which is still true to an extent, that there aren't that many jobs which are both reasonably remunerative and fairly creative and interesting. Yep. You know, there are, there are many jobs in the music industry, etc., but those are very difficult to get into. And so I applied as a graduate to a whole bunch of ad agencies. And I think I got a first interview with publicists and Saatchi's. I got a second interview with J. Walter Thompson. And then I got a second interview and a job with what was then called Ogilvy & May, the direct, which for those of you who don't know, was kind of the performance marketing of its day. It was direct marketing, typically off-the-page sales with coupons, direct mail, telephone, addressable media, or database marketing of some kind or another. Now, interestingly, David Ogilvy had always recommended that anybody who wanted to be a copywriter should spend at least five years in direct marketing um, because you learn what works, but also you gain a kind of nose, a feel for the fact that very little th small things, you know, in tonality, in wording, in design, can have an enormous effect on how much you sell. Um, and so you kind of get to see literally the effect of good and bad marketing at the curl face yeah. by being able to perform tests and measurement. And I still consider myself a direct marketer, actually. I mean, 35 years later, I would still say that um, that's you know the formative discipline. And I think David Ogilvy's advice was right, too. I think that spending some time in direct marketing we used to then later on, we'd get copywriters who'd been advertising copywriters who, you know, they'd been made redundant and they'd come and work with us freelance for a bit. And it was really interesting. It really polarized people. People either got it straight away and loved it because they thought it was advertising at its purest or they kind of hated it and left straight away. Um, but it, it, the, the, effectively where I was lucky and I have thanks to extraordinary guy, the late Dan Gipple, who was the account man then, uh, a few people like David Nobe, 
um, the late Andy Firth, gosh, there are rather too many late people here, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, who really helped me make the move from being an account person and planner, because as a graduate trainee, that's what you're expected to do. And a bunch of people helped me make the move into the creative department, for which I'm really eternally grateful. So one of the things I was going to ask you next, and you, you almost alluded to it then, but going back to the early part of your career, what's the best piece of advice that you were ever given? Gosh, I, I can't remember whether I was given this advice. I mean, there, there was a fantastic guy called Drayton Bird who's still active. He's, you know, in a sense, the Lester Wonderman of the UK. He's kind yeah. of the godfather of direct marketing in the UK. Was very good friends with David Ogilvy as well. And um, he and a bunch of other people um, would have been fantastically good at giving uh, advice on how to write. Now, that's the strangest thing. You go to a university, you know, I went to Christ College, Cambridge for four years, mm. but I learned far more about how to write and how to communicate at quality uh, in my first, uh, well, actually, even before I was a copywriter, even as an account person. There was this extraordinary Ogilvy obsession on how to effectively write clearly, persuasively, um, effectively. And, uh, you know, uh, there were just countless pieces of advice, I think, which were given to me by other copywriters, by people like Drayton. But um, that was the real, that was the real um, epiphany in a way. Uh, it sounds strange, but most people aren't really taught how to write well. Correct. You know, quite often at university, you can adopt, if you're doing history, you can adopt an absurdly florid kind of Edwardian tone, which is probably what I did to some extent. Um, and uh, there was a wonderful book called How to Write Well, okay? And it was authored by Joel Raffleson. And I think the other person was, if I'm right, Jock Elliott. Now, Jock died a few years ago. He was the person who took over the running of Ogilvy, New York from David. He's an account man, yeah. uh, extraordinary guy. You know, he'd been uh, in the US Navy during the Battle of Leyte Gulf in the Second World War. Uh, he was, I think, actually a very, very important influence on Ogilvy. The other person was Joel Raffleson, who was a copywriter. I met him several times, most, la most lately in Chicago. He only died about a year ago in his 90s, I think. Okay. He was the son of Samson Raffleson, who was the Hollywood scriptwriter who'd written kind of the jazz singer, Heaven Can Wait. Okay. He worked, I think, with Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch quite a lot. Um, but he was a very, very eminent Hollywood figure. And Joel was his son and was effectively the creative director of Ogilvy Chicago for many years. But he co-wrote with Jock Elliott this extraordinary piece on how to write well, which was a kind of mandatory handout to anybody who joined Ogilvy. And um, that was... Um, that was hugely valuable. Later on, by the way, and it's difficult to realize how important reading this book might have been as a kind of epiphany to me. Uh, when, I, when I became creative director of Ogilvy One, which was the new name for Ogilvy and Mather Direct, having rebranded a few years earlier, I became the creative director and Mike Walsh, who then ran Ogilvy Europe, gave me a copy of this book, which you can still buy because it's still in print over 100 years later, called Obvious Adams, written by a guy called Robert Updegraff. And it's still available on Amazon, and go and buy a copy straight away. Now, when he gave it to me, Mike used to collect Edwardian books. Okay. And I thought, why is Mike giving me this hokey old book? Is he just trying to get rid of his kind of surplus collection of you know, Edwardian stuff? 
And um, I kind of put it on a shelf and kind of forgot about it. and thought, this is a bit offensive, giving me this slightly hokey American kind of sales manual as, as I yeah, saw it. Yeah. You know, you should have given me a subscription to the Harvard Business Review. But then about six months later, I picked up the book. It's only about, I mean, it's literally 50 or 60 pages. And I read it, and it's an absolutely fabulous book. I then discovered, funnily enough, it was one of David Ogilvy's favorite books about creativity. Okay, yeah. So that's book recommendation number one, certainly of the season. There's another one which I also admire, which is called The Specialist. Um, and that's all about a man who just makes, uh, effectively builds outdoor privies. It's an American book as well. Um, and um, that's a similar book in that it seems very, very hokey and folksy and sort of homespun and American. But then when you finally read it, you realize that it's, it's highly profound. And the same is true of Obvious Adams as well. So <clears throat> you touched on the, you, you referred to yourself as a direct marketer. Yeah, still am. Yeah, yeah I'd make, make no apology for that. No, no, that's fine. Um, I'll tell you why. It's because direct marketing, better than anything else, I think, um, whether you're a client or whether you're an agency side person, yeah. forces you until it becomes habitual to look at things from the consumer's point of view. Yeah. You know, by instinct, most people in businesses spend their time looking at things from the organizational perspective, the departmental perspective. You know, most data is collected for aggregation and reporting upwards. Yeah. You know, they're obsessed with sort of the efficiency of the production of the business, not the efficiency with which it communicates its value. And direct marketing, uh, if you're any good at it, or even if you're not, Okay, there's no way of performing direct marketing without actually thinking, who are these people? How do they feel right now? And what's the best in, in terms of introducing them to a new behavior, a new product, a new, um, a new way of thinking about things? One of my favorite quotes of yours is, is it, was it people are obsessed with the data that they don't have? No. rather than the data that Other they do around. have. No, the data that they don't have rather yeah. than the data that they do no, have. No. So that's a really interesting point, which is that people go, oh, we need to be data-driven. Yeah. And if you want to win an argument, being data-driven is great because you say, we've got all this data. The data told us to do this, so that's what we're doing. Yeah. And even if what you do as a consequence of the data is a total effing failure, you don't get blamed for it because you are data-driven. Yeah. But all big data comes from the same place, the past. Yeah. Okay, That's one problem. The second thing is, all data in a human context, by which I mean the context of human behavior. I'm not talking about logistics or aviation or you know, aeronautical engineering or anything like that. But in a human context, the data you have is woefully unrepresentative, incomplete, and almost certainly kind of biased. Because the really important things you can't quantify. Yeah. Okay, And the example I always give of that is what you should do is, is not say what data do we have. You should really start by saying, what might be helpful to know that we don't know? And is there a way of finding it? Now, that's a fundamentally different, that's a reverse process. That's reasoning backwards. And the example I always give of this is it really worries me because I think in a data-driven world, people will, I was talking to the marketing director of John Lewis Partnership. I said, what worries me is that John Lewis in Tunbridge Wells closed down. Okay, now... My argument would be, if you can't sustain a John Lewis in Tunbridge Wells, you've kind of got a problem. But they've probably come to some conclusion that, you know, towns below a population of 200,000 can't sustain a meaningful shop. Yeah. And they'll, they'll look at the data they have, which is probably demographic data combined with sales data. 
with that shop. And they'll go, oh, look, this sort of demography does not support a John Lewis store. But I lived near it. And the weirdest thing is, despite being a John Lewis fan, I didn't go there for four years. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, the side of the shop that faced the road was the narrower side of a rectangular shop. So it looked about a third of the size it actually okay, was. Yeah. So there was no point in going in there because it's so tiny, small. right? Yeah. Second thing was the entrance, it had its own car park. So you had to make a specific decision to go there. You couldn't combine it with a trip to TK Maxx and a bit of a shifty around Argos. You had to go, we're going to John Lewis and we're parking in their car Just park, despite the fact it was on a retail estate. Third thing is the entrance to the car park was only accessible by car by turning left when you were leaving the industrial estate. Okay. okay, when you were basically thinking, sod this for a game of soldiers, we've had our mucky D's, let's go home. You couldn't turn into it easily when you were entering the industrial estate except by going round a mini roundabout through 360 degrees, which is, you know, 180 degrees, which is a hugely dangerous thing to do. Correct. The sign was in the wrong place because you only noticed the sign when it was too long to turn. And finally, by the way, um, this is all obvious Adam stuff. Okay, look at what's really going on. They, for some weird branding reason, decided to call it not John Lewis, which is what it mostly was, but John Lewis at home. Okay. And I thought, <laughs> For the first four years, I thought, well, I don't want to buy a sofa, so I'm not going there. Yeah. We just, and I spoke to other people who assumed the same thing. They said, what do you mean? I assumed it was just furniture because it was called at home, at home base, home sense, right? That tends to be shit you buy to furnish your home. Correct. Okay. And so I never went there for four years. Then I actually ended up going there, possibly because I needed to buy some furniture. Discover they sold TVs, computers, digital radios. In fact, the only things they didn't sell, because I checked this with the John Lewis marketing director the only thing they didn't sell in a john lewis at home that they sold in a john lewis was women's fashion and cosmetics which are not really categories i'm particularly into anyway you could have called it john lewis for blokes you would have got more customers yeah. okay but what i'm saying there is that there are so many factors that aren't really captured by what people like to call data and which can't also be captured by what people call research because if you ask people why they didn't go there, unless they'd done the obvious Adams thing of actually staking out the building, looking at the road layout, looking at the branding question, okay, nobody would ever say, why the effing hell did you call that John Lewis at home? The reason they didn't go there, they didn't really know. They just weren't in the market for furniture because most of the time, most people aren't. So this kind of business where I, I think we're trying to bypass a whole phase of inquiry and advertising. I think the media people are guilty because they're desperate to automate media buying. Mm -hmm. And so they found a way to make money out of media without actually spending anything on creative. And the creative agencies don't know how to make money out of creative without media. Yep. That's our failing. It's a failing or failure of our own imagination. Okay. But here's where the problem lies, not just for agencies, but for clients. It used to be that when you did an ad, you went through a long, painful, time-consuming, and consequently quite expensive process of deciding what to say in the ad, okay? Now, that meant that advertising tended to be a bit better then than it was now because people yeah. put more thought into it. But here's the really important point. The most valuable part of doing the advertising might not have been the advertising. It might have been the insights that arose when you were asking those tough, difficult questions about what do we need to say and who are we talking to? 
And the, it's rather like an undergraduate or student essay, right? Nobody keeps their essays after they graduate. Does anybody, does anybody have anything they, does, any, does anybody keep anything from university? I mean, you know, a load of people sell their books. Correct, leave, yeah, right? correct. But certainly no one goes, oh, I must keep these essays so I can read them later in life. The value of the essay isn't really the essay. It's the pain you have to go through in writing it because in writing an essay, you have to think a lot and you have to basically discipline and marshal your thoughts and you have to develop a thesis and you have to immerse yourself in the subject at the end of which is an essay, okay? And the same thing is true of advertising. You know, you go through a painful process at the end of which is probably an ad. But actually the essay is not necessarily the valuable thing. It's the fact that you've been forced to write it and therefore, most of the value is in your head, not on the paper. Do you... And I think that's happening, this quest for automation, and also the quest by morons to make everything linear. Look, I'll let you into a secret here, right? Okay. There isn't really a process in advertising. We pretend there is, because otherwise procurement would get upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a hell of a lot of it is, okay, if there is a process, it's recursive, it's iterative. You double back on yourself, you explore a false avenue, you, you know, it's, it's like a detective investigation, you know. Yeah. You get obsessed with the, the idea that the Yorkshire Ripper has a Geordie accent, and then eventually you catch a bloke in a car park in the Bradford Red Light District, and so on and so forth, okay. It's messy. It's like a Sherlock Holmes story. It's like a kind of, um, it's like a detective investigation, and it doesn't happen in a straightforward, um, uh, linear process. Do but people who design processes want to think they're linear. I'll give you another example of this, okay? I wouldn't buy a house if I were you. I wouldn't, go on, I wouldn't rely solely on prime location or right move. Why? Because it makes it linear. Now, the correct way to buy a house, or for that matter, to find a partner is recursive. You explore the market and you refine your preferences according to what you find, okay? And very frequently, if you talk to estate agents, they'll say, people come to us with a list of five things they want in a house, and then we end up selling the house that doesn't meet any of those criteria. The exact and the reason opposite. is because they go, oh, I didn't think I wanted a hot tub on the roof, but it turns out that I do, okay? And the same thing should apply to dating, and the same thing should apply to lots of processes where you effectively you refine the question in the process of trying to answer it. Okay. Do, do you think that, and this will refer to a, to, to a few areas of what you just said, do you think people are afraid to be direct in either what they want or how they'd like to tell somebody that they should have something? That you just said in marketing that it's... That, well, no, I mean, marketing <laughs> often works obliquely. Yeah. I mean, in other words, often it's better saying something by implication than saying it straight out. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes, by the way, it works through humor, where you can say something in a funny way. Uh, okay. I mean, the, this is the difference, if you like, between Avis, we're number two, so we try harder, which is an amusing self-deprecating admission of a weakness that they're not as big as Hertz. Yeah. Okay probably don't have as many locations, quite as wide a choice of cars, but that they make up for it by trying harder. If you merely said, we try harder, okay, and you hadn't had that framing of we're number two, so, okay, that isn't an effective piece of communication. That's just a, a totally idle boast or unsubstantiated claim. If you could have been in that room when Avis came up with that. It's of, one of my favorites, by the way. I've just been asked for my 10 favorite I could, I could imagine if you could have been in that 10. room what do you yeah. think the reaction would have been when somebody said, 
we're not going to go on that we're the best or the consumer no, should come to us. I, I know. And it, it is something which actually is a very potent form of persuasion, which is kind of admitting to a weakness and then flipping it into a strength. Yeah. It's exactly the same as Guinness's um, good things come to those who wait. Because yeah. if you, you know, if everybody knows the one downside of Guinness, people like drinking it, but barmen kind of hate it, particularly if you ask for it last. Yes, yeah, correct. Five pint, pints of lager, three packets of crisps, two packets of peanuts, uh, two glasses of dry white wine, and a Guinness. The barman goes, oh, fucking hell, you should tell me that should first. Have told me that I could have poured half of it by now. That at the okay, because it's an arse to prepare unlike other beers which you just sling out into a glass. Preparing Guinness is an arse and you've got to wait for it. So what you do is you take that and you flip it into a positive. And that's exactly the same thing that Avis did, or indeed Stella Artois with reassuringly expensive. Yeah, okay. correct. Yeah. And it's a really interesting and, and um, um, a very good copywriter here called Alan Howell came up with a fantastic end line for The Spectator, which they wouldn't run with, which was annoyingly right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's again that kind of... Um, Brilliant little yin and yang kind of, uh, you know, contrast, which is peculiarly painful. Now, clients like The Spectator hate doing anything which admits to a negative because their simple logic is why would we put a negative in our advertising? We're spending all this money. All it should say is we're great. Now, that's very bad persuasion. Unfortunately, it means that what you tend to produce are unsubstantiated kind of hollow claims and boasts. And so there is that, you know, that fascinating skill to, you know, I, I, one of my favorite end lines, which also features in that top 10, is um, as well as stay thirsty, my friends, the most interesting man in the world for Dos Equis, uh, you would end every single ad by saying, I do not always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. Okay. Now, what the client instinctively would want him to say is, I never drink anything other than Dos Equis. Okay. But A, that's not plausible for the most interesting man in the world because it would make him less interesting. Less interesting, yeah. But B, the, I prefer, you know, I prefer Dos Equis. In other words, there's a, actually, it's an admission of how markets really work. Consumers have a repertoire and the leading brands are largely leading brands because more people buy them at all and the people who do buy them slightly more often. To sort of double whammy effect. Yeah. Okay. And it's an admission of honest reality. Okay. And you instantly gain, I think, honesty and authenticity points through admitting a little bit of a negative. Now, the most extreme campaign of this kind, which you can also find still on Amazon, even though the practitioner died quite a few years ago, it's called, I think, Small Brothel in Pimlico is the title of the book. But for about 10 or 15 years in the Observer and the Sunday Times, there was a chap called Brooks, I think he was called Roy Brooks, who was an estate agent, who advertised the properties he had for sale, purely in text, there was no photography back then, yeah. but they were written in an unbelievably rude and funny way. You know, hence, you know, small brothel in Pimlico, you know, the, you know, the room isn't large enough to swing a cat, but blah, 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 you know, um, you know, uh, you know, a colony of rats have taken, held in the basement, etc. Um, but it was brilliant advertising because of the authenticity and honesty and kind of candor, um, disarming candor of the approach. And I think that is an issue, which is that, you know, if, you, if you're an estate agent, you said, look, can we just mention a couple of negatives here because it'll make us more convincing. The person who's wanting to sell their house, be going, no, no, don't tell them about that. Don't tell them about the busy road. You know, talk about the uh, roof terrace, okay? But actually, I'm not sure one 
nobody believes estate agent ads. And secondly, when you turn up and discover the busy road, nine out of 10 of your potential buyers have pissed off. So you've ended up wasting a load of estate agents' time by showing people who don't like busy roads a house which they didn't realise was by a busy road. Of where they're going. Um, I've got a couple more questions. And I think one, the, the, the takeaway for me from spending this time with you is a lot of what you've learned or what you've been through is very personal. As in, it's um, th- there's a lot of people that have had a big impact in your career. Yeah, absolutely. With the advice and everything else. Um Addressing the elephant in the room of marketing, yeah, that people are stop using as many people, or they're looking to stop as use many people. But me, I'm a pure believer in creativity comes from the mind. Yes, yes, it, it, it does. I mean, it, it doesn't only come from the mind; it comes from observation. Yeah. By yeah. the way, I mean, you know, I always remember having this conversation with Jimmy Carr, where he said, you know, comedians would make very good copywriters yep. because they notice things. Yeah. You know, and quite often those things are actually quite trivial. I mean, I think it's worth noting the reason creative people are annoying to other people. There are several reasons, one of which is they're procrastinators. Yeah. Okay. They don't start work straight away. There's even an experiment John Cleese mentions about this, where the the most the least talented architects would all start drawing things up on day one. And the most talented architects would do nothing, they'd commit nothing to paper, perhaps, other than doodles. And what they're doing, because they're creative, is they're waiting to get lucky. They're waiting to have inspiration. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright, actually, they've asked me to build the house next to the waterfall, but I'm going to flip it and build it over the waterfall. Yeah, yeah, Okay? So they're procrastinating. Technically, they don't have a sense of proportion because they know that something that's emotionally potent can come from a very trivial behavior, gesture, change in wording, that actually human perception doesn't have a sense of proportion. In other words, how we respond to, you know, can you close the door? Can you close the door, please? And there's a draft. Okay. We respond to those three sentences, although they're attempting the same end, in completely different ways. And therefore, creative people are right in many cases, not all, to get anally retentive about what seem to the people commissioning them as relatively small details. And... um, so um, not always. I mean, I, 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 you know, uh, the, maybe the lack of a sense of proportion is something you need to apply judiciously. But um, it, it is nevertheless a kind of case where there are aspects to people who are very linear and very kind of outcome focused, who want to solve a problem, come, on with the, come up with the right answer, get a tick and move on to question 17. Yeah. Those people find the behavior of creative people maddeningly frustrating. Because it's in many ways the inverse of what's seen as being productive or efficient. If you have a kind of mechanistic view of the world. I'm sitting here smiling because I'm just thinking we've got a studio of six. Mm. And you pretty much described an average week. Yeah. Of, but it's, it's dealing with those people or their thought process. So um, a question that we always like to ask, but sometimes we forget. But it's one that gets the mind ticking. And, and I think it really gives an insight into the person. You've got a table booked this evening, uh, eight o'clock in your favorite yeah. restaurant. You've got four seats around the table. You are one of them, dead or alive. Who are your three guests that will be joining you? Actually, you'd have to put Bill Byrne back down because obviously, I mean, he died in the 1980s. Um, and uh, this is from an advertising standpoint. 
uh, he, th there are a few YouTube videos of him and he's an absolutely fantastic expositor. Yeah. But if you search for Bill Burnback on YouTube, there are only a few bits of film either surviving or, or that have been uploaded. Yeah. Um, Simply, and actually, it's not because of his ads. I wouldn't spend the time talking about his Volkswagen ads, simply because he appears to have been an unbelievably interesting kind of polymathic guy. And he deserved to be there with the other company. Oh, Dr. Samuel Johnson, okay. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and um, actually, to keep the conversation going, there's a guy I'm going to see tomorrow who would definitely be one of the guests if you had a table of eight. Uh, Australian economist called Nicholas Gruen, um, uh, who's just a fantastically interesting uh, broad thinker, who would also make the most out of talking to the other two people when I ran out of things to say. I got the, the slight impression this is slightly male. Um, I, I mean, I'd also include Nassim Taleb might be another a friend of mine, also male. Um, so this is this is looking dangerously male. Um, but you would include uh, undoubtedly Elizabeth I. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a brilliant example, actually. I think that in business up until about the 1970s and 80s, there were a lot of businesses that were actually female-run, except de jure, by which I mean the PA or the assistant or the immediate opposite number okay. to the um, uh, to the chief executive was the person who actually ran the business and made it successful and had the general social skills and other skills to do that. But they were probably paid 10% of what the actual guy was paid. Yep. But their role was no less, um, uh, no less distinguished. And I think there's a case for that with Carl Benz's wife, who I think was called Bertha, if I'm right. But the origin of the motor car... And the, and the marketing of the motor car was as much down to her and her extraordinary um, uh, grasp of publicity. So Carl had kind of invented, you know, the, you had the internal combustion engine, you had a very crude car with appallingly, you know, crude brakes, yeah. which is obviously the origin of Mercedes-Benz. And his wife, without Carl decides to set out on this ambitious journey in the car. Now, of course, the car was creating crowds everywhere it went. It was an absolute sensation. You couldn't buy petrol because there weren't any petrol stations, so you had to buy it from a pharmacy okay. where you could buy, effectively, gasoline oil to fuel the car. And this, we always forget that behind every success, okay, A, I suspect there's quite often a second person, quite often female, who's actually just as, if not more, decisive. And we also forget the fact that every great uh, success in innovation is also a marketing success. Because if it wasn't a marketing success, we wouldn't even remember it as an innovation because we would have done something else instead. And so I always make this point. I mean, actually, another candidate for that dinner would be Colonel Sanders. Yes. Um, Colonel Harlan Sanders. We'll have to get you a bigger table. Yeah, we'll have to get a bigger table. This, yeah. this is starting to look a pretty weird <laughs> table as well. Um, but... Um, but the extent to which, actually, it's one thing to have the idea, it's another thing to persuade other people to adopt it. And that without, it, it, most business success is a door with two locks. You've got to unlock the actual technical, logistical, what you might call left brain challenges, mm -hmm. but you've got to unlock the marketing challenge, the psychological challenge as well. Because if you only want unlock one lock, the door isn't going anywhere, or you have to kick it down at massive expense, okay? 
And so I, one of the things I think that's terrible is we tend to, when something's a great success, we tend to then attribute all the, the, the kudos to the product, not to the marketing. Because quite often, Steve Jobs would probably rather be remembered as an innovator than the great marketer. He wasn't. He was a marketer. His technological ability was fairly paltry, to yeah, be absolutely honest. Yeah. I mean, the, the geeky people within Apple said, you know, I don't get what Steve even does. Like, he can't even code. Okay. And so the extent to which this marketing role in the successful adoption of anything is absolutely decisive, okay? And yet, in retrospect, it's written out. I mean, Henry Ford, for example, you think of absolute pioneer of mass production. Yep. No one's disputing that, okay? But if you look at the early days of the Ford Model T, and by the way, there, there was only one color, but there were tons of versions of the car. He was developing things like credit schemes so people could, you know, the whole dealership network. There were tons and tons of advertising done for this thing, okay? Um, because people needed an advertisement to persuade them to stop using a horse and start using a car, okay? And so we forget all this because now we're doing a car, okay? Brilliant, you know, but actually... Every single really significant innovation has really been the product of someone turning both of those keys, unlocking the door of making it physically possible and logistically possible, but also unlocking the mental lock, which generally drives people not to adopt new behaviors unless they really have to. No, you've nailed it there. And I think if I remember as well, the, the, the Model T was the bootlegger's favorite car as well because they were able to make it faster than anything else. Well, that was the, 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 that and the V8 late, later because Bonnie That's and Clyde, I think, wrote correct. a letter. to The Ford Motor Company still has a letter from Bonnie and Clyde praising that V8 yeah. for the fact which, that it could basically outrun the, the, the cops. Which is amazing because yeah. from that negativity slash positivity, it increased the power of the brand even further. Um, Rory, I've got to say, I've absolutely loved this. I wish I could spend more time with you. And Have you missed a question? No, 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 no. no. Okay, we've covered, we've covered them. We've covered, you've covered, the you've okay. covered them all off. I think you answered some of them in there, but <clears throat> I don't know you that well, but I imagine that four people around your dinner table is going to stick with you for quite a long time. And if you do narrow it down to four, but you'll change because it is a little bit of a loaded question. I've been with the company for four years. Yeah. And I don't have a full table of four yet, but I'm quite comfortable to ask other no, people. No, I mean, there are other people from the advertising world that have to be sort of uh, Mary Wells. Uh, actually, um, I only met David Ogilvy once, but his widow is equally fascinating, actually. Um, uh, Colonel Sanders, I think I'll elevate uh, to that. I mean, to be fair, no one ever has said Colonel Sanders. No, no, I thought that would be new. Yeah, that but I, but it's an extraordinary thing. If you, think, that if you want to really, I can end on this note because he's actually one of the funniest things you can see on YouTube. You remember there used to be that 1950s program called What's My Line? Mm. Okay. And um, you had to guess what someone's job was, okay. what they'd done. And early in the days of KFC, Colonel Sanders appears on What's My Line. Now, this is hysterical because you have someone who's probably... One of the most five most recognized, you know, along with Chairman Mao and, you know, you know, and, and, you know, one of the most recognizable faces in the world ever. OK, and he comes in looking more like Colonel Sanders than you'd imagine possible. OK, wearing a white suit with a bootlace tie. And then these four people desperately trying to guess who he is. And you realize, of course, he was, by the way, he was 65 when he founded that company. I mean, if you, if you want a bit of encouragement for late stage entrepreneurship, Colonel Sanders is your man. Um 
But it is one of the funniest things on YouTube. Just look up Colonel Harlan Sanders, What's My Line? And watch, you know, three or four, I can't remember, highly intelligent people going, do you make something that's edible? Okay, that's just brilliant. And you suddenly realize, of course, that the fame was an absolutely integral part of the popularity. And yet what happens with businesses is they discount that once they become a bit famous and they start obsessing about things like, you know, efficiency of process and cost cutting. And for a while they get away with it. But then, you know, I mean, KFC is a very good case of someone who hasn't done that. They've invested in the real estate, the decor, the whole, you know, the whole, you know, the whole estate. Yeah. Okay. But the number of businesses where you now go in and you go, whether, whether it's you make a phone call to the call center or you go into the bloody restaurant, you go, it kind of feels like it's run by its finance department. I no longer trust it. It no longer feels authentic. And I think, I think we're doing that just more and more because I think, I think there's this sort of financial mafia that you know, is driven by efficiency and has no clue about uh, the psychological value that it creates that's just taking over organizations. I think you've nailed it there. Rory, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. 